Hello world. Uh, I posted my the first part of my October challenge movie journal last night. And as you can see, uh, it has taken the world by storm. Simply everyone is talking about it. Um, but it's actually Halloween today. So I figured, hey, why not go ahead and talk about the next 16 movies on the journal? As of this recording, I've seen 33 altogether with another 21 movies to go if I watch all the ones that are on my watch list. Uh, but I guess since it's Halloween today, it is officially sort of over. So I don't know. Hey, it doesn't have to be official um, because I'm just doing this for fun anyway. And posterity, which is why I'm recording it. So we left off with we're all going to the World's Fair. So next up is the Stendhal Syndrome, which is the first of a couple of Italian movies that I watched this year. Um, whether you watch a giallo specifically or not, I think you do need to watch at least one Italian horror movie every October because uh, it's represents a pretty good scene for horror, that country, which is funny considering that horror movies were banned both from being made and from being watched under the rule of Mussolini, which is why you don't really get any horror movies to speak of from early cinema up through the late 50s, which is when they made like Ivan Piri and Kaltiki the Immortal Monster, uh, which Mario Bava, I think sort of ghost directed both of those. But from 1996, we have the Stendhal Syndrome, which is, I said the title already, but that's Dario Argento's take basically on the uh, rape revenge thriller um, and starring his own daughter. I don't know, is it Asia or Asia Argento in the lead? But um, she plays a cop who falls victim to the murderer that they are currently investigating in Rome. And he follows her back to her, I forget where it is, but the small town where she grew up, she goes back to be with her family and he follows her back there and continues tormenting her. And she becomes obsessed with revenge for, you know, good reason. And then a lot of mysterious things happening. It seems like at a certain point in the film, he's dead, but then people keep dying all around her. Uh, so did he not actually die? Did she only leave him for dead? Um, and this is probably the last film in Argento's period that I think is considered sort of of interest for Argento fans. Not sound mean. Uh, maybe some people would say the card player. I haven't seen that one. I've heard it has some Argento-esque sequences. But in terms of being a, a consistent work all the way through, well, even some people would debate that because there is the, ostensibly, uh, this is the first Italian movie to feature CGI. And um, some people take issue with that. I thought it was used pretty well because the Stendhal syndrome of the title is this idea that you are put into kind of a hypnotic state by art. So there's a couple sequences where, and it's mostly represented in the movies by paintings, where Asia Argento's character is like looking at a painting and becomes hypnotized and starts to feel out of her control, like she's drifting into the world of the painting. And they use a mix of CGI and real locations to represent that tra 
uh, transition between worlds. It's up for debate how much the syndrome itself actually plays into the plot of the movie. Um, it's sort of just this uh, background effect, but it's effective, but it's, you know, it feels like sort of the ultimate statement of Argento's oeuvre as a whole is the idea of like being so transfixed by art that you drift inside it. I mean, there are moments of deep red where he's moving the camera around like a cafe and everybody is the clothing and makeup kind of make people look like they are objects in a painting and they're all like doing the mannequin challenge, basically just like remaining completely still as the camera moves around and you feel like you're inside of a painting almost where nobody's moving except for your main characters. And it's a surreal little flourish inside of a movie that otherwise seems to take place in some version of our real world. And the Stendhal syndrome has, uh, I'd say a really great performance by Asia or Asia Argento, uh, very, you know, she's a cop, so she's very like tough and with it, but she's also extremely vulnerable and it's probably the most lucid in a lot of ways of Argento's movies, at least of the ones that I've seen. Cause like I said, even something like deep red, which is supposed to take place in the real world does have these like little moments that go like, mm, that feels like it's pretty heightened uh, or the characters are not emotionally reacting in quite the way that they might in real life to give it kind of a dreamlike feeling. And the Stendhal syndrome has some of that, but it probably feels the most like any Argento movie I've seen of like relatively straightforward emotionally, but I did like it quite a bit. It's got a great score by Ennio Morricone. That's always a plus. Number 18 is Dracula, the Spanish language version, which was shot. Um, most horror fans sort of know the legend of, uh, what is it a legend? I don't know. The fact that when, because of the fact that Todd Browning's Dracula was made so early in the cycle of sound film, uh, they didn't really have techniques like dubbing yet to sell films to foreign markets. So they would just shoot an entire different version in another language to capitalize on, you know, if you want to sell a movie to South American countries or whatever. Um, so they filmed the version of Dracula in Spanish with different actors, Mexican actors. And Dracula is probably the most well-known of these alternate versions because of the fact that the crew and the director, I think, was American, not Mexican. But there was an idea that they wanted to sort of outdo Todd Browning's Dracula. And the film is notorious for being better made overall, like utilizing more camera movement. And I think the pacing of the film is generally better in terms of the way that it keeps a scene moving. Um, and the Todd Browning version, I've talked about this on the podcast before, is I really like Todd Browning as a director, typically in terms of his, his silent films. And obviously he did like freaks and then even his lesser known stuff like the devil doll and the unholy three and stuff like that. I think his movies usually have a pretty lively pace about them, but his version of Dracula is just really 
uh, slow moving to the point that it becomes a bit tedious, I think. And so the Spanish language version, it did hold true, I think, in that it it uh, is a better made movie. It feels like it moves along in a better clip. Most of the actors are doing comparable or better work um, than the actors in the original. I think that the actor who plays Renfield is doing, I wouldn't say he's doing better than Dwight Fry because Dwight Fry does put in a pretty iconic performance, but the actor playing him in the Spanish version is, I think, a little bit better at sort of flitting back and forth from madness to sanity. I feel like once Dwight Fry goes over the edge, there's no longer any point at which he's even trying to convince anybody that he's actually sane. Whereas this actor is sort of, he'll have a really big nervous reaction to somebody saying something about Dracula or whatever. And then he'll just immediately, like almost in a cat-like sort of way, just regain his composure and be like, hmm, I can't say I know anything about that. And just like trying to put on this mask of sanity um, which is really fun. And the, other, uh, obviously the guy who plays Dracula himself is no Bela Lugosi, but you know, it, it's, I'm glad we have both versions, I guess. And one thing that I didn't realize about the movie was, or that I hadn't heard before is that it actually has a much longer running time. It's like 97 minutes or something in comparison to the English language version, which I think is like 70 something minutes. And, so you get some sequences that have been added in. The most notable one is that you actually get a sequence on board the Demeter, which in the original, I think they just show some footage of the crew working in the storm. And then you have the ship watch it, washing up ashore with the captain bound to the wheel that you see in shadow. But here you actually see Dracula uh, getting out of his coffin on the Demeter and hunting the sailors and stuff. So that's probably the most notable addition. And then a lot of the other stuff that gets added in, I would say it does. I said that the individual scenes are better paced, but the movie as a whole is maybe about equivalent because it moves along at a better clip, but also they added in an extra half hour. And I'm not sure how much of that is actually necessary. So I would say the ultimate conclusion to me is that it's pretty much equivalent to the English language version. It just has different strengths and weaknesses. After that comes Off Season, which is a movie that was released last year. It's I was looking at the AV Club's list of like the best horror movies that came out in 2022 because I don't really have much of a way to unless they talk about an individual horror movie that breaks through to the mainstream on some of the movie podcasts that I listen to, which tend to focus more. They're not horror exclusive. I don't really have any, I don't, I don't tap into the horror scene specifically anymore. I used to listen to a couple of different horror podcasts and they either went defunct or I just kind of, well, mostly they just went defunct. So those were the ones that used to sort of keep me uh, up to date on new horror stuff, but I don't really have that anymore. So um, now I just kind of have to hear what filters through to the point that I hear about it. Like, Black Phone or X or whatever are sort of like relatively high, high not highbrow, but high visibility releases. But then stuff that's kind of under the surface or like even something that's at the level of like a girl walks home alone at night um, is something that I feel like it might slip through the cracks and I just might not hear about it quite so much 
if it comes out now. So anyway, I looked up the AV Club's list of like best horror movies of 2022, and I wrote down the ones that seemed interesting. And Off Season was pitched basically as like a New England Lovecraftian uh, type of cosmic horror story. And they sold it as like, it has the feeling of like a radio play, like an old time radio play in terms of just being really low key. And I thought that sounded appealing. Um, the actual movie itself is just okay. I gave it a five and a half out of 10, meaning like, you know, there's just barely enough there for me to recommend it, but I don't think it's great. Um, the story is about a woman who gets word that her mother's gravesite back in this small New England town, or it's actually an island where she grew up, her gravesite was desecrated. So she's returning there with her husband from wherever they live to uh, try and suss out what happened and what they can do about it and fix it up and all that. And then it comes out that like her mother, who was a famous actress, um, in her final days, she was like begging her daughter, like, do not bury me in that town where I grew up. Like, do not, please, for the sake of my soul, do not bury her there. And her daughter just kind of dismissed it as like, uh, she probably just has dementia or something. But she intends to follow the, uh, you know, directive until the lawyers are reading the will and they tell her like, this will specifies that she does have to be buried there. And the daughter's like, no, she told me, very specifically, she didn't want to be buried there. Somebody must have changed it. It wasn't in the will last time I saw it. And they were like, uh, well, it's in there now. Nothing we can do about it. You know, we can't verify with her whether it was changed or not because she's dead. So we just kind of have to go off this. So she does wind up getting buried there. And then uh, all the typical scenes that you expect from a New England Lovecraftian pastiche happen. Um you know, the graveyard in the mist and the ocean um, waves rolling up upon the sandy beach under a gray sky. It's all there. Unfortunately, the atmosphere is, it never quite gets there because the cinematography, it's hard to describe, but it just feels kind of overlit. Like everything is too, there's too much clarity and you can see everything. So the things moving around in the fog, which would normally be very like elusive, amorphous shapes that you can't quite make out what they are. Just everything just feels a little bit too safe. And also the music is really like overblown. Like when they go there to, they get to the gravesite and they see that, that the tombstone is like cracked in half or whatever. There's like this big dramatic musical sting. And it sort of works against that low-key atmosphere that I think New England horror kind of needs to sustain, at least until you start seeing, like, demons or whatever. Um, and then there's just all the cliched scenes that you expect, like the characters walking into the pub, and everybody there is having a good old jovial time, laughing and joking and taking swigs of their beer. And then the moment these outsiders walk in, everybody goes dead silent and swivels their heads and looks at them with this like uh, ominous glare, you know? And I feel like that moment was so cliched, even 
40 years ago that John Landis was kind of playing it, not for laughs, but he was playing it in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way in an American werewolf in London. And then you have that moment here, and it's just kind of played straight. And you're like, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that you always have to wink at the audience when you're engaging in cliches, but you do have to give it, you have to impart some kind of a twist to it, I think. And this movie just doesn't really seem interested in trying to impart any particular kind of spin to anything that it's doing. It's just kind of doing it in this really straightforward kind of way. And there just doesn't really feel like there's anything original about it. Um, But I will say, you know, the ending is sort of semi-interesting. So given that the movie is like 90 minutes, uh, it's sort of kind of worth watching if Lovecraftian mythos and New England towns uh, appeals to you at all. It's like you might get just enough out of this to make it worth your hour and a half. Next up is Basket Case, which is, um, what's that filmmaker's name? Frank Hennenlotter. Basket Case from 1982. I don't know what to say about this movie, except that I didn't enjoy it. I just thought it was kind of boring. Um, it's about a guy who's checks into a, they call it a hotel, but everybody living there seems like it's feels more like a boarding house. Like everybody's living there like long term or something, uh, at this, you know, sleazy boarding house in New York city with a colorful cast of characters, of course. And this guy checks in and he's got a basket that he's always carrying around. And sometimes he seems to be like whispering to it when he thinks nobody's around. And, uh, eventually you find out that the basket contains his brother who used like this small misshapen blob that used to be attached to him at the hip. And then against the guy's will, when he was like a preteen or whatever, um, an operation was carried out to remove him from his, his, uh, conjoined twin. And, but the twin survived unexpectedly and, uh, became murderous. So, and now they share a telepathic link and, is getting in his way as he he's trying to take care of his brother and track down the surgeon who performed the operation to take revenge upon her. But then he meets a receptionist at, for one of the doctors and starts up a romance with her. And wouldn't you know it, that that brother in the basket, <laughs> brother in the basket. That's my Daniel Day-Lewis impersonation from There Will Be Blood. Just a brother in a basket. Um is making things difficult for him and seems to make it hard for him to have a normal life. And yeah, I don't know. I didn't really find there to be much of interest in the movie. I just thought it was kind of, you know, so dedicated to being like, I don't want to say in bad taste because I don't think it necessarily is try, but uh, it just, I don't know. It seems so concerned with like being outlandish in its premise that it, kind of forgets to actually get you invested in what's going on. Like as though the shock value is enough to carry you through this, you know, 80 something minute movie. And for me, it wasn't. All right. Next. Um, I, I don't know if I could pick a favorite era of horror movies, but I do find something really fun and comforting about nineties horror, which is not that surprising considering that's the era I grew up on. But, uh, there just don't really seem to be that many that I haven't seen yet. Um, so it kind of, again, like it gets harder and harder every year to find some that I haven't seen yet. Cause either I watched it at the time 
or, you know, there are some that just look really bad that I'm like, I don't think I would even get a nostalgia hit out of that one. But I watched Lord of Illusions, which is a Clive Barker film about magicians. Um, Kevin J. O'Connor plays a magician who seems to be, you know, doing it for real, basically. And so you kind of borrow a lot of beats from stories about magicians and and con men. They always have the story of like, what's real? What's an illusion? Um, You know, we saw somebody die, but did they actually die? Or was that all part of this fake overall uh, con or prestidigitation of life? Um, And it's Clyde Barker. It's called Clyde Barker's. And he actually did write and direct it. Unlike some things which are just like Clyde Barker, Clyde Barker's bloopity bloop directed by somebody you've never heard of before. And, uh, it's a fun movie. Um, you know, again, if you like nineties movies, it kind of has that throwback to film noir vibe that was so prominent in the nineties or film noir or like pulp, pulp comics and stuff. Um, like, you know, the phantom and movie or, was it called the Phantom? I think it was where he was in the purple suit, Mister uh, Titanic himself, Billy Zane, um, and the Rocketeer. You know there was that like pulp retro throwback movement of the nineties. This is kind of part of that because you got Famke Jensen, who I mentioned. All right. Oh yeah, this was the second thing that I saw her in outside of House on Haunted Hill. But she's she plays the magician's wife, and she's kind of a femme fatale, and you're never quite sure like whose side she's on and she seems to be perhaps indulging in some romance with the main character who is a, is he a private eye or just somebody who happens to get caught up in the investigation? I don't quite remember. Um, and then there's a backstory about how Kevin J O'Connor, the magician years before the events of the story, he went out to this like basically like cult desert compound looking kind of thing where all these members were, you know, shaving their heads and wearing the clothes of the, their leader. And, and then he was a guy who was actually practicing magic, but he seemed to have some, some bad plans. He wants to kind of end the world for reasons that are never quite elucidated. And he's clearly bad news. So they start off by not killing him, but uh, keeping him at bay with this like metal mask that they put on him to, and then they bury him. And then his disciples, years later are attempting to revive him. So they're going on a, a killing spree, you know? Um, I don't know. It's a pretty fun movie. I gave it a seven out of 10. Uh, next up is another silent film. I say another, cause on the first movie journal, I covered destiny. This one was called Satan's Rhapsody. It's another Italian movie, but this time from 1917, And it's, you know, the fun thing about silent movies is they only had to be like, you know, 40 minutes long to be considered feature length. And that's what this one is. And it's a takeoff on Faust, the Faust legend, but with a woman instead of a man. And the thing is, the only screening of it that I could find was on YouTube. Like you can watch it for free, but all of the intertitles are in uh, Italian. So I had to every time a title card came up, which was probably like three or four a minute, I would have to pause and 
type the text into um, Google's, you know, Italian to English translator and get sort of a basic gist of what they were talking about. And um, it's a little confusing because the main woman's name is Alba, like Jessica Alba, but Alba means like sunset or something like that in Italian. So if I forgot to capitalize it, there would just be like the sentence would be structured around the idea of a sunset. And I was like, what are they talking about? Oh, right. Sunset is the main woman. And yeah, it's just a story about an old rich lady who makes a deal with the devil to get her youth back and then falls into sort of a love triangle with two brothers becoming infatuated with her. And then uh, one of them becomes increasingly, you know, arduous to the point of threatening to end his own life if she doesn't um, reciprocate his love and that causes complications. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. If you like silent movies, I'd say watch it. And then two Italian movies in a row, because the next one is The Bloody Pit of Horror from Italy in 1965. And um, he, I mean, I guess this is true across filmmaking in general, but Italian horror of the 60s is so different from Italian horror of the 70s. Um, this movie's not a giallo, but it does feel like it's taking its cues visually from Mario Bava's uh, Bava's um, Blood and Black Lace in terms of these really vividly saturated colors, like just like this super technicolor, like it almost looks like a musical in terms of the vividness and saturation of these colors. Like there's a lot of reds and uh, mainly reds. <laughs> um, and it's about uh, some, the, beginning has the prologue where you have the actors in these kind of party city looking medieval costumes, putting this guy to death. He's a medieval executioner who seems to enjoy his job too much and maybe has done some extracurricular executing, but they, they kill him in his executioner's outfit. So he's wearing like, I guess not pantaloons, but like pantyhose looking like red <laughs> tights and then, and uh, no shirt, and then like the hood, the crimson hood on his head. And he gets killed in an Iron Maiden that has a, uh, like a window where you can see his face. So he gets that um, cross-eyed look that people tend to get in horror movies when they're getting killed. <laughs> uh, so it's pretty silly. And then flash forward to contemporary Italy where they're, a group of models and photographers are breaking into the castle where this happened. Um, not knowing its history, but thinking that they can do a shoot in this torture ta uh, torture chamber. Um, basically, I think as like references for the paintings that this cover artist is going to paint for these horror novels, which were so popular at the time. So there's a lot of like imagery that, you know, Jalo was based on or inspired by the film genre was inspired by basically sort of like whodunit novels that were uh, initially translated from other languages, mostly English, like Agatha Christie and um, Raymond Chandler, you know, that type of like hard-boiled, I guess Agatha Christie's not hard-boiled, but these like murder mysteries with like lots of pulp and sex and violence. And then Italians started writing original stories in Italian that were translated and that were also given these iconic yellow covers that publishers decided would 
catch readers' attentions. And so that imagery is what inspired Mario Bava to make Blood and Black Lace. And then, which also has to do with uh, models getting killed one by one. And Bloody Pit of Horror is sort of like that, but instead of concerning itself with like mod, chic, you know, it's medieval torture chamber imagery in the modern day. And um, it's a pretty ridiculous movie. Um, the person who winds up being the killer, who's killing the models and photographers across the castle, has a lot of monologues about his perfect body. You know, he's got like a six pack and biceps that he's very proud of. And that seems to feed in somehow to why he feels the need to um, be killing everybody. It's never quite clear. And then uh, your main hero and heroine are um, escaping death traps and fight, trying to fight him off. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. What's there to say about it? It's pretty fun. Um, if you like cheesy horror, certainly it's a lot of fun to look at, like the visuals, like I said, or and the cinematography um, is very vivid. After that, Books of Blood, speaking of Clyde Barker. Books of Blood came out in 2020. So, you know, whenever there's a 30 plus year buildup from a really influential horror novel or a novel of any kind to a, a film adaptation, I don't know, brace yourself because it's probably not going to be very good. And Books of Blood, I did read the first three volumes of the Books of Blood. I think there were six altogether. From what I remember, and I think the IMDb trivia confirms this, like Books of Blood is sort of in, it's not an anthology, but it's like Pulp Fiction. Um, I've talked about this also on the podcast before, is I forget what the term is, but there is a term for when there are separate stories, but they take place in the same universe and characters like spill over, like somebody who's in the background of one story turns up as the protagonist of another story. Or like you see in this movie, you see a character starting to cross the street and then almost getting hit by a car. And it's just presented as like a lone incident. But then in the later story, you see like these characters are the people driving the car. So you get the scene again from their point of view where they almost hit the girl. And yeah, I don't know. Like this one was not directed by Clive Barker and it shows like it's so standard in its approach. The cinematography is really standard. The dialogue is really standard. The acting is really standard. And the thing that's like can be off-putting, but is also really distinctive about Clyde Barker's work as a director is everything is just kind of weird. People don't really act like normal people quite so much. They always feel a little bit like off-kilter even before anything sensibly weird happens. And the way things are edited and shot is like, it might not work for you, but at least it's got its own sense of style and books of blood just feels like the most standard plug and play, you know, this type of lighting, this type of, you know, kind of boring standard leading actor type acting, um, this kind of dialogue, this sensibility to the way the characters interact and form relationships. Um, and apparently Clyde Barker had a hand in coming up with the new stories for the, uh, anthology. Um, and the only thing that actually comes from the book is from the 
prologue or sort of the wraparound device. I don't remember specifically what, but there's a th- passages at the beginning, which I think is not actually a story unto itself, but it's just sort of there to introduce the concept of the book, which is like the first sentence is like the dead have highways or something. And that's exploited at a couple of different moments in the movie um, and sort of feeds into one of the stories, which is about a, a psychic who talks to dead people and then a professor, a skeptical professor wants him to jump through all the hoops to prove to her that what he does is real. Um, if you're doing a Clyde Barker adaptation, you should at least give it some personality. So I don't know. I guess if you're the sort of person who doesn't really care so much about filmmaking, but just is like, well, you know, if a movie is like a base level of competence, and then on top of that, it gives me like an image that I haven't seen before, then I will be satisfied with it. Then I guess this movie is for you. Because there are a couple of moments that it's like, I guess I haven't seen that image in a movie before. But I was just really, I can't even say disappointed because it's not like I had high hopes in the first place. But I was annoyed, really, that it, it all just felt so standard. So like template by the numbers horror filmmaking. Uh, something that does not feel standard is my next film, Tourist Trap from 1979, which is about a, a group of kids or, you know, early 20 somethings who, um, their car breaks down. Is it sabotage or was it just a coincidence? Who knows? Um, and then they wind up getting some assistance question mark. Is it actually assistance by an older guy? Uh, they keep calling him like an old coot or whatever, but he's played by Chuck Connors, um, most famous for the rifle man, who at the time that they filmed this in the late 70s would have been only in his late 50s, you know? I get defensive about the idea of calling people in their 50s old now that I'm in my heading into my late 30s. I'm like, oh, that's not that far away. 50s isn't old. That's 50 is the new 30. <laughs> but, you know, people aged faster back then, I think. Um, and then the crux... Uh, I hate that I keep saying the crux, but the... Um, conceit of the film is that it's gradually uncovered that like somebody uh is running around on the estate that this guy this chuck connor's guy owns in this desert you know in the middle of nowhere um that seems to have telepathic abilities and there's a lot of like mannequins and wax figures that are getting brought to life uh and coming after people is the basic premise and um If I had to say which of the movies I've watched so far was the creepiest, I would probably pick Skinamarink. Um, But Tourist Trap does vacillate back and forth from like kind of cheesy late 70s low budget horror filmmaking to like genuine nightmare imagery. Like the killer is chasing after the main girl at one point, like outside in the dark. And he's got a... uh, mannequin head and then the mannequin head like the mouth keeps opening and uh the mannequin's like molly (laughs) and i guess it's explained by the fact that the guy has telekinetic powers but it's sort of like how is he making sound come out of their mouths it doesn't really make any sense but it does have a kind of nightmare logic that kind of sticks in your brain like even though it's a movie that's 
well over 40 years old, it does feel like some of the stuff in it is so potent that it still kind of sticks with you. And it also has a, a bizarre sense of humor sometimes. And um, Chuck Connors, it's funny that a significant portion of people, including Stephen King, because he talks about this book and um, or this movie and Dance Macabre, talks about Chuck Connors being miscast. And I honestly thought his performance was really good, you know, because I grew up watching The Rifleman. Oh, uh, my dad loved TV Westerns. Well, still does. He's not dead that I know of. But um, and he was like the wholesome single dad rancher who, you know, occasionally had to use violence to solve his problems. But there was always some kind of moral at the end about like the fact that, you know, telling his his young son that he was trying to raise to be a good person. Like violence is not always the best solution, Mark, you know, or whatever. Um, you know, try to find a way around it. Try to work with people instead of just shooting them with your rifle, even though that's what I do every episode. Uh, so I thought he did a really good job from that perspective in this movie of playing a kind of gleeful, demented, genetically, t- tell telekinetically, abled uh, villain. Um, anyway, I lost some audio. I just recorded my all my thoughts about the Five Nights at Freddy's movie, and then Audacity popped up and said, we lost a bunch of your audio. So I guess I'll try and recapture what I just said. But uh, yeah, Five Nights at Freddy's was, I think, the first movie of this that I saw in the theaters. And... That was the ideal way to see it because it's fairly uh, mediocre as a film. Um, there were lots of uh, young people in the audience in cosplay, you know, talking very excitedly before the movie and even during all the previews and stuff, like chattering very excitedly. Like this is clearly an event as evidenced by the fact that it's breaking all kinds of October box office records and knocking Taylor Swift out of uh, first place at the BO. Um, And, you know, so it was probably the best atmosphere in which to see this film because of the fact they were, you know, cheering during all of the Easter eggs and like applauding YouTuber cameos, none of whom I recognized at all. And like stomping their feet or going like, "Mm," you know, like having a big reaction when, uh, somebody said like a a spicy line of dialogue or something It was the best way in which to see the movie. Having said that, it's not a very good movie. Um, the problem is just that it's, I don't know. It's tough to talk negative about stuff like this because I think people are so eager to just dismiss all of your complaints as like, Oh, well, you're not a fan of the video games. So how can you have any, or like you hate, movies that are just for like the common person or movies that are for fans of a thing or something. But I don't know. I feel like as a person who is a fan of things, I feel like it is in my best interest to be honest about movies um, because I don't want movie studios to keep making bad ones and just expecting me to fall in line and pay for the ticket when they could have done better and they chose not to because it was just easy, you know, like the five nights at Freddy's movies were going movie was going to be successful no matter what. And it just kind of has that feeling of like somebody somewhere along the line was like, yeah, we could make this better, but why bother? 
Like, why put the effort into it? The pro- And I don't know, again, like, I know there's a certain type of person who will say that I am anti-fan because of that, but it's like, no, I want you and the fandom to have a better experience. Like, you deserve better, and you're not going to get it because you just kind of line up at the trough and just eat whatever garbage they feel that justified in feeding you because they're it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to get your 12 bucks for the ticket or whatever it winds up being. So I don't know. I get a little bit annoyed with fandom that way. Um, I think they call it toxic positivity, you know, like you don't have to say that this is great just because it's long awaited and it's an adaptation of an IP that you already feel strongly about. Like you can be critical. It's okay. I don't know. It's just like this weird street cred thing of being like, I love that it was the best thing ever. And just being in denial about its flaws because that's the community that you're fitting into or something. I don't know. It annoys me. And it annoys me. Like people complain about like latter day Marvel movies or something. And I'm like, the writing was on the wall, dude. Like they've been bad for a long time now. And you kind of stuck with it because you were invested in those characters. And so you sort of told yourself that they were still amazing because it's like, well, I remember when the Tony Stark movie was something to look forward to. So therefore I must love Avengers Endgame or whatever. And it's like, no, it was already bad. <laughs> they were already badly done movies, but they just had your goodwill from because you were in at the ground level when they were actually trying. And it wasn't just all like cashing in on your fandom. I don't know. Like, don't if you're a fan of something, don't let movie studios cash in on you. Because that's, you're being exploited. They could be making something actually good. And you're not doing yourself or me, who has to also see these movies to engage in the cultural conversation, even though, you know, I gave up on Marvel a while ago. But you're not doing anybody any favors by like pretending something that is crappy is good. You can actually demand quality, like have some self esteem, have some self respect, people. Uh, anyway, that was a long tangent. The main problem with Five Nights at Freddy's is just has a really boring story. It's Josh Hutcherson is like a, a guy who can't hold down a job, um, because he's really, uh, got PTSD over the abduction of his little brother. When they were kids, they were at a campsite. He saw his brother get abducted, like shoved into a car and taken away. And he's never been able to forgive himself for not being able to not being there for, even though he was also a kid. And now as an adult, he's trying to balance his uh, his issues of, of being haunted by that memory with trying to raise his his other little sibling. This one's a sister. Um, why are there so many siblings in this movie? Like pick one or the other, uh, it, it, you know. Um, the script just tries to do way too much while also being incredibly paper thin. And the movie is two hours. And like, I don't care about this custody battle where Josh Hutcherson is trying to fight his aunt for custody of his little sister. And, you know, he has a hard time connecting with her and whatever. Like, who cares? I don't care about this. Just show me the animatronics killing people. (laughs) And they do show you that for like, there's exactly one scene that is really fun where a bunch of intruders who are like colluding with Josh Hutcherson's aunt who for some reason, I don't remember why, but in order to gain some kind of leverage in her custody battle, 
it involves them having to break into Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, I guess it's because Josh Hutcherson is the security guard there. So the idea is like if we go in and trash the place, uh, then it'll look like he's bad at his job and he'll get fired and then I'll it'll be easier for me to get custody of Abby or whatever. Um, and it's purely because she wants the, uh, you know, checks she gets from the government for having custody of this kid. And, um, and the aunt is played by Mary Stuart Masterson of, you know, fried green tomatoes and Benny and June fame. And she's a great actress. I really love her in those, those older movies, but like, why was she cast in this? I mean, you know, she needs a job, so I don't begrudge her for, showing up here and getting the paycheck, but there's just nothing for the character to do. Like anybody who is, you know, over the age of 40, because we're automatically trained to, you know, hate a woman who wants something out of life and is, you know, not 20 something. (laughs) So all she had to, all they needed was like an actress who could like get a mean, a mean glare on her face and, you know, not look 20. And that would have done it. And for some reason, they cast the very overqualified, over-talented Mary Stuart Masterson in that part and then gave her nothing to do. So that's pretty aggravating. And it's just so low energy. Apart from that one scene that was actually good and is directed with, it reminded me of like, you know, a Sam Raimi, especially Sam Raimi doing the PG-13 thing, like in Drag Me to Hell, where you have to like kind of substitute things for like um, the gore. You have to show it in a little bit more of an artful way. So they do like uh, shadows on the wall and just kind of like out of focus stuff and abstractions and stuff that is fun. And it feels like a fun artistic choice as opposed to like, we have to do this because this is PG 13. Um, Like at one point you see one of the intruders gets a, swept up into the mouth of the animatronic and then it cuts to their shadows on the wall and you see her legs kicking as she's trying to get out of the mouth. And then suddenly the animatronic chomps down and her bottom half just like falls out of the (laughs) falls on the ground in shadow form. And it's like perfectly PG 13, perfectly uh, gruesome and horrible. Um, So that's really fun. And it has like kinetic camera movements and the music is really good and the editing is really uh, goes along in a nice clip. And then the rest of the movie is just like, I don't know. It was co-written by the guy who made the games. And um, I don't want to cast aspersions on him for being a, you know, self-proclaimed Christian, but it does, in a, it does feel a little bit like that. Like, when you see a Christian film and it's like, this is trying so hard to convince me that it's meaningful, even though this is like a paper thin premise. Um, That's kind of what happens with this movie is like, we're supposed to feel like Josh Hutcherson's emotional struggles are like meaningful. And it's like, who cares? This is five nights at Freddy's. Can't you just let it be a fun kinetic action horror comedy film? Why do I have to like, pretend that I care about his recurring dreams like it presented in such a way that like, I don't know, whatever. I don't care about any of this. And yet you're telling me that it's so important and it's not important, Scott, whatever your name is. Uh, and the, so the biggest problem is just that it ends on a really low energy note. Like there's the final confrontation with the founder of 
Freddy Fazbear's pizza place. And there's like a lot of buildup to it. And he comes out in his gigantic animatronic suit and his voice is all like filtered through the, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but um, uh, he's got the, like the glowing eyes and the voice that's like half human and half animatronic. Uh, and, you know, you're expecting something really big and then it's just like, it never, nothing happens. <laughs> It's just so low energy that it's like, this is going to put me to sleep anyway. But if you're going to see it, see it in the theater with a crowd of fans, because that'll make it a lot better. Next up is The Night Strangler, which is the second of two Kolchak movies that uh, Dan Curtis, I think Dan Curtis directed both of them. He at least directed this one in the early 70s, Richard, written by Richard Matheson of I am legend and um, Hell House fame. Uh, Kolchak, if you're not familiar, was played by Darren McGavin, and it eventually became a TV series uh, called... What was the TV series called? Because the first film was called The Night Stalker, and then this one is called The Night Strangler, uh, and Kolchak was the main character. And then the TV show, okay, the TV show was called Kolchak, the Night Stalker. So I guess he is, so I guess he is the Night Stalker. The idea is that he's the reporter who's out there hitting the pavement, stalking the night, trying to uncover these uh, supernatural elements that the the cops deny their veracity and these kinds of things. And So he's got to get past the bureaucracy and also face down the supernatural entities and that kind of thing. Uh, which is a really fun premise. And it was, if you can tell by the description, that sounds like it was probably the inspiration for the X-Files. Um, it was. And Darren McGavin even appeared on the X-Files as, uh, his name was like Arthur something, I think. But like the the founding member of the X-Files, you know, he shows up from time to time and tells Fox Mulder about the exploits of, of uh, this department when it was young in the, I guess it was supposed to be the seventies also, um, or maybe even like the fifties. I don't remember, but, uh, his casting and that was a tribute to his role as Kolchak, the night stalker. Um, Darren McGavin, again, if you're not familiar is most famous for being the dad in a Christmas story. And the night strangler is about, uh, women turning up dead. They've been strangled, but they also have blood missing. So it's sort of like, I think the first movie is about a vampire. So it does feel a little bit weird that they have a supernatural creature in this movie. who's not a vampire, but he's also taking blood from their necks. <laughs> uh, so you're like, I don't know. Couldn't you have figured out a different monster? And yeah, Darren McGavin is the main reason to see it. Uh, and it takes place in Seattle, which is pretty novel because apart from Frasier, like Seattle's not a city that gets a lot of love in like movies and TV, I think. Um, you don't really get much of an idea of the character of the city in a way that like, even if you've never been to New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, you probably piece together how they feel from how often they are uh, exp the setting in movies and TV shows. And then Seattle has like an underground city because of the fact that like, I guess because of like flooding or something. But anyway, there was like an initial version of the city and then they built over top of that, a new, uh, ground level, I think, yeah, just to 
keep out water or whatever. So there's this whole underground city that, as it's portrayed in this movie at least, is like fully intact. Like there's still buildings and like intact buildings and and uh, curtains on the windows and all that. Like it just looks like it's just an abandoned city basically, but it's always night there because there's an artificial sky overhead, which is the ground for the above city. So anyway, that's a good setting. And uh, the character of Kolchak is really fun, but I'm not really a fan of Dan Curtis as a director. I've seen a couple of his things and I think he just, he didn't really have much of a, an eye for pacing. Um, I feel like his movies are very flatly paced and they're kind of just like, well, the script says this happens. So I guess in this scene, this will happen. And it doesn't really have any like peaks and valleys or ebbs and flows in terms of, you know, like it seems like everything that happens is of equal import at all times, which makes the whole thing just feel kind of uh, flat. But I watched that one because it was on Sven and I like watching uh, Sven from time to time. Next up is The Hole in the Ground, which is from Ireland. It uh, came out in 2019. It's um, sort of a changeling story. Does every Irish horror movie have to be about changeling mythology or at least the fae folk? Um, certainly seems that way. Uh, a woman by, uh, moves to a small Irish town after apparently leaving her husband. They don't exactly say what happened, but... She's got a scar on her forehead that she says is from an accident. And uh, over the course of the movie, you know, her local physician questions like, is that actually from an accident? So I think the implication is that her husband was abusive and she took her kid and left him. And so they're living in this small Irish village on the edge of a forest. And then in the forest, they find this giant sinkhole. And um, one day she finds her kid playing nearby the sinkhole uh, and then from there on, he it seems like he might not be the same kid anymore. He may have been, could be that he's a lookalike who's been replaced by, um, a, a force that we don't quite understand. Uh, so that's the movie is her sort of dawning realization that like, is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with my kid actually? And it's very well shot. I thought the main actress was really good. Don't know her name off the top of my head. And let's see what else. I don't know. I thought it was really good. It was moody and atmospheric. Like it felt like, even though it takes place in Ireland and off season takes place in New England, I felt like this is sort of like the right way to film moody and atmospheric coastal town. Uh, or it's not really coastal because I guess they're not on the ocean that I remember, but like it's, you know, Ireland. So it's overcast a lot of the time and, just kind of has a gloomy feeling about it. And I thought that was the main strength of the movie that, and the the main actress's performance are what really make it worthwhile. And it's a 24 and they are pretty consistent. I think about releasing generally pretty good horror movies. Although this one is not as good as some of the other ones. And it's not as weird either as like lamb or something like that. Uh, 29 haunting of the queen Mary. This is one, that I watched. Um, my girlfriend picked it out basically just based on the fact that it was being promoted on Hulu as a new movie of theirs. And here's some free advice for, uh, if there are any screenwriters listening to this podcast, um, if you're writing a narrative that has, 
Or if you're writing a story that has dual narratives and one of them takes place is a period piece and one of them takes place in modern day, it's a pretty safe bet that you can just go ahead and eliminate the modern day portion and your story will be that much stronger. Uh, It just keeps happening time and time again in both movies and novels is like authors are so married to the idea of doing like parallel storylines in different times and the modern day storyline is just dull. It's boring. It's like that did not need to be there at all. And especially with this movie, The Haunting of the Queen Mary, of course, the Queen Mary is a ship that has a lot of ghost stories about it. So this is sort of like a what if type of deal. And the modern day story is about this husband and wife couple who uh, are there trying to, because, you know, Queen Mary is not an active ship anymore. It's just like a tourist attraction. So they're there trying to convince the owner that they should write a book about it or turn it into like a virtual reality experience. But that's uh, the after the first time they visit their kid. It's hard to explain because they, they keep changing the story about what happens, but their kid is there with them and he has some kind of supernatural experience. And then later on there, there's two different visits that it shows of them being there. And the second visit seems to be to find their kid because he like left and maybe turned up on this ship again or something. It's not really explained super well, but I don't care about this couple trying to like rekindle their relationship. And you don't really find out anything about substantial about what happens to their kid until the very end. And even then it's really ambiguous and you're just kind of like, what was all that for? That was all for nothing. But the story that takes place in the past and the movie is like, I think it's over two hours, by the way. Uh, It's like two hours and four minutes or something. And the portion that takes place in the past is kind of the majority of the runtime anyway. So if you cut out all the modern day stuff, you'd probably have a pretty tight 70 or 80 minute movie is about like it starts with this family. The father is wearing a mask that covers the lower portion of his face. Um, And there this family is impersonating a first class family. Because the dad is like, I don't want to travel in third class anymore and get treated like garbage. So they're trying to con their way into first class and they go into the the first class, you know, dining area. And then the daughter who is um, has aspirations to be a movie star sees that at another table, there's like a famous producer and it's everybody's in costume and uh, eventually it gets found out. So anyway, she goes over there and like tries to introduce herself basically to set up like, I want to be in the pictures, see? And the producer guy is like, get out of here, kid, get out of me. He's not very nice or sympathetic to her, to her uh, aspirations. And then um, they basically get found out. And then the husband goes homicidal. And again, this is all basically in the trailer. So it's not like it's a surprise or a spoiler. Um, but yeah, husband goes homo- homicidal, gets an axe and kills everybody. And then the movie is sort of about figuring out like, why was he possessed or did he just go insane or what exactly happened there? I like the audacity of the period story. Uh, at one point, the guy who's dressed as Zorro comes over to their, to the little girl after, again, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because the girl's parents get found out and they get kicked out, but then they don't kick the girl out. They just let her stay there. And you're like, why is that happening? But she's just hanging out at the table all by herself. And then, the guy who was at the table with the producer who's dressed as Zorro comes over and takes off his mask. And the girl's like, gasp, it's Fred Astaire. And 
you know, it's played by an actor who doesn't look or sound anything like Fred Astaire, but it's just like, oh, whatever, I'll buy into it because that's such a batshit idea to introduce it to your horror movie that just came out this year. And then Fred Astaire um, helps her out and like they do like a dance routine together because uh, he's trying to, you know, help her clinch the deal with this producer who doesn't really seem to care that much. And the implication seems to be that Fred Astaire dancing in this dining room slash ballroom is like stirring something up in the ship. And that's what causes the dad to get possessed. And I just thought that was uh, sort of a funny conceit to take a real life movie star and have there be like this crazy dance number. And then it turns out that that's what sort of ignites the whole set of supernatural events, as opposed to like, we accidentally read out of that book of ancient incantations, you know, like what if instead of the Necronomicon, it was Fred Astaire that caused all the trouble. So I thought that was really funny. And that's kind of the highlight of the movie that just goes on for like way too long. Number 30 is Psycho 2. Have you seen the first Psycho? Well, this is the second one. Uh, And it's about Norman Bates getting released from the asylum after he's declared legally sane and going back to the motel um, in his old house and uh, striking up a French because he gets a job at a diner. So he strikes up a friendship with an actress there played by or sorry, with a waitress there played by Meg Tilly. And then it's just about their sort of um, will they, won't they, but it's like a will they, won't they of like, is he going to murder her? (laughs) Are the old impulses going to come back and he's going to kill her? Um, Because she gets kicked out by uh, her boyfriend early on. So he has her stay at the motel and um, some of the old impulses are maybe coming back, but then there's like strange things happening. He keeps getting notes um, that ostensibly are written by mother. He's getting phone calls from somebody claiming to be his mother. Uh, and then um, the Vera Miles, who was Janet Lee's sister in the original movie is back and she's very um, aggressively trying to warn everybody like he's not cured. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to snap and kill people. He killed my sister and you're just letting him out. And so there's a, there's a lot of pressure on old Norman from a lot of different angles. And then the movie is just sort of a, a twist and turn psychological uh, question mark of like what is actually happening and what is all in his head and who's doing what. And um, it sort of reminds me of uh, the immediate comparison I thought of was Die Hard with a Vengeance because, you know, the legend of that movie is that that was just written as a spec, stri- spec script that had absolutely nothing to do with the Die Hard franchise called uh, Simon Says, and then the producers, like, came across it and thought that it would be a good vehicle for John McClane, so they just, like, plugged Bruce Willis into it after the fact and turned it into a Die Hard movie. And, you know, if the script had been made in its original form, assuming that it was essentially the same without the John McClane character or the fact that Jeremy Irons' character is revealed to be Hans Gruber's brother, which is a dumb reveal, not to relitigate Die Hard with a Vengeance. But, you know, if it was made just about some madman who was taunting the police with riddles so that he could um, distract them long enough to, you know, rob Fort Knox or whatever Jeremy Irons' ultimate goal is in that movie, it would just be like kind of a passable 90s action thriller that like nobody remembered a year or two after the fact. But because they stick John McClane in it, 
it suddenly has sort of a longer shelf life in the pop culture consciousness. And that's what Psycho 2 feels like, is like, it's got a pretty decent, able script. And uh, the director, who was also the guy who made Road Games, which is one of those Australian, you know, Ozploitation movies, that I think gets a lot of attention from horror fans now that everybody's rediscovering things on DVD and streaming services and whatever. The direction is solid. The script keeps you guessing. But if you took Norman Bates and the imagery of the motel and that spooky house up on the hill that he lives in out of the movie altogether, um, then I think it would just kind of, it might've become like sort of a cult classic along the lines of like, I don't know, the hitcher or something. Um, maybe not even that good, uh, or that well-remembered then, you know, it, it just probably wouldn't even be that well-remembered today, but it does have a certain reputation. And I think it's entirely because of the fact that you've got Anthony Perkins in there doing his, his Norman Bates thing, uh, really elevates it. Number 31, Insidious Chapter 3. Uh, what is there to say about this one? I was glad that they moved away from a different family than in the first two Insidious movies. I know that this is already like eight years old at this point, so everybody who's going to see it presumably has already seen it, except for me. Um, but I, I really like the first Insidious. I thought the second one, it was a mistake to go back to the well of of that same family again, which I think they also do with the one that just came out. Um, it just kind of felt like a, a retread that was just sort of like trying to convince you that it was doing new stuff, but it was just sort of like, it's just, I don't know. Uh, so this one focuses on a new family. I thought that was a good idea. I don't know. I don't have that much to say about it. It's apparently supposed to be a prequel. Cause I think Lynn Shay's character is no longer living. After the second movie, is that a spoiler? I guess so. Um, so this is sort of a prequel about her deciding that she's retired because it's getting too dangerous uh, with all these demons popping up all the time. And then, you know, the girl who's getting some demonic intervention in her life after her mother dies uh, sort of brings Lin Shay back into the fold. I forget what her character's name is, obviously. Brings her back into the fold and makes her fight the good fight again. And um, I don't know. What is there to say about it? It's Insidious 3, directed by Lee Winnell this time, who only wrote the first two, and then James Wan directed it. Uh, he directed this one, and, uh, you know, I think he's an okay director. I thought The Invisible Man was pretty good, but kind of overrated from how much people loved it. It had a lot of stuff in it that just seemed a little too silly for me. Um, but I think he's generally a capable director, and that's what I would say about this movie is like, it's capably done. The end. I feel like I had one other thought about it. What was that going to be? Oh, my, my favorite part of all these movies and these insidious movies in general is the way that what should be a very metaphysical or metaphorical, even maybe idea, which is like showing that like, you know, every demon or ghost movie has to be about like, no, don't give in to these ghosts or demons. You're stronger than them just have the stronger will or the stronger faith or whatever. And the way that they represent that in the insidious movies is to have the characters go into the further and then just start like beating up ghosts. And that really makes me laugh. It's just so silly when there, when there's like a, a scary demon lady with the black veil over her face and the white makeup and she looks really evil 
And then Lin Shay is like, I'm stronger than you. And she just like throws her out a window or something and flies across the room. Like this is like a Kung Fu movie. It's just so silly and ridiculous that I can't help but love it. And the last entry in this particular movie journal is going to be Blind Beast from Japan. I feel like I've been talking about so many movies from the USA on this round. Um, but this one's from Japan. So, hey, go go me. I did it. Yeah, Blind Beast from 1969 is uh, the type of movie that I probably would have come across years ago. Um, I used to listen to a podcast called Cinema Diabolica, which did like Euro trash and sleaze and giallo movies. And I forget what they were called, but there's like a specific subgenre of like Italian crime movies from around this time that were like super violent and histrionic. Um, they covered this type of like B movie cinema and blind beast is like kind of art housey. Um, and I think the subgenre is pinku, which I've never seen before, but it seems to be sort of like a, from what I understand, I think it's like a mix of like horror violence and almost like pornographic content. Although again, this is made in the sixties. So it's not that like, I think you see like a nipple like once, but it's really more about the, the ideas, this kind of psychosexual atmosphere or tone to the entire film. And uh, it's about a, a blind man who's a, wants to be a great sculptor. Um, and he has this idea that he wants to create an art for the blind, like an art of the touch. So he abducts this model to basically force her to be his muse uh, so that he can like sculpt her body, which obviously is very icky because the way that he, the way that he, you know, develops a conception of her body is to uh, feel her up basically. And, you know, it's not really whether you're blind or not. That's not really something you can do against a person's will, at least not ethically. I'm not saying the movie is like pro this guy, but it is, trying to use this concept to explore ideas of like sadomasochism, um, violence and sex and the link between pain and pleasure and all that. And their relationship goes from being, you know, basically like what you would expect the relationship to be between a kidnapped woman and her kidnapper, uh, where she's trying to manipulate him in order to be able to escape for most of it. But, Eventually, it develops into something much more perverse. And uh, the immediate comparison that I would make is to Martyrs. Martyrs? I don't know why I said it that way. Because I was sort of thinking about, like, in English, you call it Martyrs. And then in France, I'm talking about the original French one. Um, I think it's, I've heard it called, like, Martyr or Martyrs or whatever. Which I saw the very first time that I did one of these October challenges. I watched Martyrs. Uh, probably just like a year or two after the movie actually came out and was underwhelmed by it. And Blind Beast kind of made me draw the same comparison in terms of, you know, the way that I felt about Martyrs was that it had a lot of potentially very interesting ideas, but it seemed to be at a, a bit of a loss as to exactly how to express those ideas. Uh, so at a certain point, it started to feel like once you um, strip away all of the shock value of this film, 
which, you know, I don't think a movie can be tedious and shocking at the same time. <laughs> so I wasn't really all that disturbed by Martyrs because it was just like, I'm not invested in anything that's happening because it just feels so trying to put forward a particular thesis and then using the violence to sort of support that. But I don't know, like the thesis is so kind of, I don't want to say thin, but like there's so much promise to the idea of what is behind this that like when you just reduce it down to a bunch of violent actions occurring against your main character, it just kind of becomes boring because you're like, I would like you to explore the idea that you're actually saying you're trying to explore here instead of just showing me a lot of really violent imagery that doesn't really do anything to further the philosophy that you claim is underpinning your film. And that's kind of how I felt about Blind Beast was like, I'm sure it was very shocking in its day in 1960s Japan, um, even if it doesn't necessarily show a lot, like just the idea of these characters devolving into this relationship of of like mutual torture and uh, eventually murder. I mean, whatever, like you kind of know how it's going to end. I don't feel like too bad about spoiling it. But once you take away the kind of context of the time and place in which it came out uh, and how that would have had people perceiving this as scandalous, once you can move past that, because it's, you know, uh, 50 years later, um, and a lot of this stuff seems kind of tame by today's comparisons. It's like, what's left? You know, uh, it's a well shot movie. I guess that's what's left. Like the area in which the woman, the model is being held uh, captive has all of these gigantic sculptures of like different body parts. Like there's a whole wall full of eyes and a whole wall full of noses and a whole wall full of ears. And then in the center of the room, it's like, a giant pair of breasts <laughs> and it's like lit very moodily and the, the use of color is really interesting and cool. But yeah, I think I kind of felt the same way I felt at Martyrs where by the time you get to the last like 10, 15 minutes when all of the really, I guess you would say perverse stuff starts happening. It's like, but I don't care about any of this because it's not doing anything to further any kind of, it's like, it just feels like a repetition of the same idea over and over again. And like, no matter how shocking you set out to make the expression of that idea, it's like, I already got the idea. So you kind of have to like do something with it or develop it. Um, I don't know, but I know that from reading the reviews on IMDb, a lot of people have some very strong feelings about this uh, movie as, you know, an art house experience and like, Oh, it's, amazing what this movie dares to do and frankly to me it's just sort of like i don't really think it's daring i think it's just kind of wallowing i, I don't even want to say wallowing because that makes it sound like i was offended by it i wasn't offended i was just hoping it would move on to an expression of its of its central theme that wasn't just repeating the idea over and over again that like these characters are in a sadomasochistic relationship yeah okay i got that now now, where does it go from there? And the answer is, well, it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, that's a sad note to end on. Um, oh, well, what I can say is a more positive thing is this is not part of the challenge officially, because like I said, I don't include rewatches, but my girlfriend and I did go to see, we saw uh, just on a, I was looking at movie theater showtimes on 
Monday, the 30th, the day before Halloween, and I saw that Halloween, the, the, uh, not titular, but the, the film titled after the actual holiday, Halloween, John Carpenter's original was playing, I guess, probably as part of a Fathom Events thing or whatever at our local theater. So we went to go see it and it is, it's not a movie that I've ever like out and out loved. I always felt like, you know, there are certain aspects of it that are kind of sloppy or feel a little bit hokey from today's standards. And uh, as we were heading home, I told my girlfriend, I was like, it's funny that Laurie Strode has been like grandfathered or grandmothered, I guess, into being like the most iconic final girl of all time. Because if you were to release this exact same movie today, um, I think people would just be like yelling at the screen about how like, stupidly she behaves after she discovers Michael Myers is after her like she after two times she like stabs Michael Myers one time with a sewing needle and one time with a knife and then she just kind of like you know ambles on over to the other side of the room and like tosses the knife away carelessly and just kind of luxuriates there like well that's done (laughs) Um, and you know, if that happened in a movie today, people would be like ranting against it on every platform that they could and, and, uh, giving it a low rating on IMDb. Um, cause they're like, oh, how could she be so stupid? But because of the fact that the movie was already venerated as a horror classic by the time my generation was growing up, it, it kind of got, you know, slotted into the spot of like, and she's the most amazing final girl ever. But the so anyway, those those are the things that have always kind of bothered me about Halloween in terms of the way that people really talk it up as such a classic, because I think that there are a lot of much better made horror movies that don't get nearly that much respect. However, all that to say, sorry if you're mad at me, all that to say that like seeing this one in the theater was a wonderful, a wonderful, simply a wonderful experience. Uh because it is seeing it on the big screen really allows you to get completely lost in Dean Cundy's amazing cinematography. And one of the things that it made me think about as I was seeing this, you know, image two stories higher, I don't know, I don't know how big a movie theater screen is, but seeing it on the big screen uh, made me think about like one of the things that we've really lost with the transition from film to digital as kind of the standard for horror movies since horror movies tend to be made on a low budget is the use of shadow in Halloween is so important to I don't know why I emphasize it like that it is so important to the look and feel of the film because of the idea that like Michael Myers could be hiding anywhere and you just get this depth and density and richness in the shadows, especially in that scene where Dr. Loomis and the nurse are driving over to the asylum. Um, and that is so just like just pitch blackness in, in areas of the screen. That's just like pools of shadow that you, you don't really get that in digital because and also just the inherent softness of film compared to the HD uh, 
hyper clarity of digital where, you know, I said on bodies, 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 I think that's a movie that uses digital well. And I stand by that. I'm not saying that you can't do really great horror movies on digital, but there's just that inherent lack of clarity or lack of, uh, light, um, on film that, cause digital wants to pick everything up. Digital wants to be clear and precise and kind of plastic. And yeah, with film, you just inherently get those deep shadows that really give you that sense of like the killer could be lurking anywhere because I can't see anything. And not only can I not actually see what's there, but it just feels like you're being drawn almost into like a portal of darkness as you look on the image created by a film negative as opposed to digital when there is something that always feels just a little bit sterile about it. So anyway, um, so that I didn't have to end on a mediocre or on a middling mixed review of Blind Beast, I'll say uh, Halloween is a pretty good movie. And if you get a chance to see it in the theater, you should. Um, okay, I think I've talked myself out and I talked you out long ago, listener. So I'll go ahead and sign off and say that maybe sometime in the middle of November, if I watch another, if I watch the rest of these 21 films that I have on my list, I will drop a third one of these. Uh, don't don't hold your breath. Bye.